The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. This week, we're delving into the floor-related rule changes the FIA is introducing for 2023. Why are these happening, and will it cost lap time? And we also explain how F1 in schools is creating the engineers of the future. Welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. And as always, I'm joined by the star of the show, Gary Anderson, a designer of legendary Grand Prix cars, such as the iconic Jordan 191, and who has experience of F1 in one form or another, covering almost half a century. So, hello, Gary. How's life? Uh, life's hot. Um, yeah, it's uh, nice to see a bit of summer, but um, we could do with a little bit of a balance tonight between the hot and the cold, I think. Sometimes it's a bit... Uh, so either over the top one way or the other. But yeah, life's pretty decent, to be honest. Yeah, I think everybody's suffering from the uh, the heat at the moment. It's going to be a, a warm couple of weeks for F1 as well in France and Hungary. But as always, we'll start off with the usual question, which is what's caught your eye in the world of F1 tech this week? Well, I think, you know, the suggestions for 2023 on the, um, the porpoising and general rule changes to sort of uh, dot the I's and cross the T's on these ground effect cars is the, is the main thing. I think it's something that people need to, to know now because they will be starting to do the research very, very shortly for for next year's car. If we uh, if we look at it in detail, I mean, there seems to be a sort of consensus from the technical directives that we've had so far this year that says that um, there may be some skullduggery going on under the counter, I suppose you might call it, with floors flexing and uh, cars being able to run lower ride height uh, than they should without actually hitting the ground too hard. In other words, if you can make the, the centre part of the car, the plank area of the car, move upwards a bit when the car does hit the ground, it means in general you can run the whole car lower, which means the sides of the, the car are running lower to the ground, so you get more downforce out of it. And what we see with the Mercedes, or we saw in Azerbaijan really with the Mercedes, was that whenever they hit the ground, they hit it pretty hard. So the car is just bouncing off the ground, really. Um, so it's a bit of a compromise between what's being run to um, exploit the regulations to the maximum and what's being run outside of the regulations. And I think the FIA are trying to find their feet where that's concerned. But moving on to, to, to 2023, the thing about <clears throat> moving the sides of the floor upwards is, uh, in my opinion, is a good idea, the, the rear part of it, because that's the... That's the part that causes the grief. That's the part that, that makes you want to run the car lower to the ground. Um, at the minute, it's it's the, the as far as I know, and it's really hard to read the regulations without sitting down and really taking them all in and drawing the car. The outside part of the floor is actually ten millimeters higher than the reference plane, and then you put the plank in the middle part of the floor, um, which is another ten millimeters thick. So in effect, the outside of the floor should be 20 millimeters away from the ground. If you let the car sit down on the ground, the, the outsides of the floor should be 20 millimeters away from the ground. I think that's done just, just to protect the sides of the floor a little bit from the regulations, or from the curbs. I think it's done in the regulations to allow the cars to run up the curbs a little bit and not destroy the sides of the floor just. Um, so they're talking about moving that um, up. Well, the, the wording is another 25 millimeters, which would mean it'd be 45 millimeters up from that. Now, if we go back a year to 2021, um, the, the the sides of the floor at that point in time were 50 millimetres up, 
from the ref from the reference plane plus the plank 10 millimeters so 60 millimeters higher so the difference in 45 and 60 is not you know not not dramatic but what it will do is stop their teams running the, the car so low is that the right thing do the, do the fia have to step in and, and stop the teams running the car so low um i think it's a good idea to solve the problem but however i think the best solution would be to place the plank um wear stiffness and um remove some of the skid plates you know place that a lot better so that it's basically it is the criteria for each team to to adhere to now the thing is that you know as we've seen in the past whenever the plank first, was first introduced people are getting penalized after the race so you know the race finishes checker flags out everybody's happy and suddenly when you one corner of your plank isn't thick enough so we don't want to get to that point we really want the, the checkered flag to say this is the race order people can watch the race see the the race order listen to the interviews with the drivers and go home thinking yep i know what happened there if you wake up in the morning suddenly instead of joe bloggs being second he's now 17th um that, that's really not where we want to get to so any any policing of the plank that's done we need to, to come in with a a serious um, solution to penalties and you know genuinely I think that solution should be points shouldn't be position it should be points so basically if you, you you lose the points for that race because you haven't got them but you, you still carry that position it's a difficult one to do or you lose points overall to let to a certain level you know every millimeter extra one can be you know 10 points gone out of the, out of the, uh, the constructors and I think it should be the constructors and not necessarily the drivers although probably it's better to be both so they need to really think about the penalty as opposed to as opposed to how they're going to do it uh, it's not so much the fact you measure the plank very accurately and if the teams don't comply with it they should lose something but i don't think we should have it as a position in the race at the end of the day because that's that's what people watch for and the really is that although we have millions and millions and millions of people watching um and we do have millions that follow the championship the end of the day nobody sort of sits down really and, and adds up the points to get told every weekend who's leading championships and stuff like that so it would it would fail into sort of inv invisibility i think if you were taking points away as opposed to race positions and just to run through what the fia said about next year's regs it'll be a 25 millimeter raising of the floor edges which is the main thing you were talking about a raising of the underfloor diffuser throats the introduction of more stringent lateral floor deflection tests and the introduction of a more accurate sensor to help quantify the aerodynamic oscillation. The interesting thing about all of this, though, is how much of this do you think was foreseeable? I mean, the, the raising of the floor was something I think you pretty much recommended to the FIA, didn't you, at, uh, at testing when you were chatting to Nicholas Tumbasis. So these things were foreseeable. Do you just think this is necessary fixes to the regulations or do you think with the knowledge of how these cars would work, perhaps some of it should have been anticipated? You know, it's all right to say some should have been anticipated, I suppose. But, you know, the teams, that's their job, is to solve problems. With any, any set of regulations that's solving that problem and getting the best performance out of it. Now, if you're achieving that performance by running the car, um, I, I won't say illegally, but, but bending the rules. If you're running the car into a grey area of, i.e., the, the plank uh, flexing, then I think that's the thing that should be stood on or stamped out. Um the, the sides of the floor are a logical thing to do because they just they just stop it being this light switch from being close to the ground. You know, the, the, the downforce change from, you know, a 20mm gap to a 10mm gap, you know, is, is a quarter of what it will be from a 10mm gap to no gap. So the downforce just multiplies dramatically as you get right onto the ground. 
So they obviously the, the, the attraction is to run the car close to the ground. Now Mercedes, taking them as an example, that's what they that's what they set out with their car to do. They they could see in the wind tunnel that get this thing close to the ground. And we've got uh, you know mass, massive amounts of downforce from the underflow, but you have to make the compromise in life of what the driver can drive with and how you can set the car up. And all of that starts from the vertical stiffness of the car and you know works back that, that comes from what the tire stiffness is like. So you know, you can't just make the car solid and let the tire do all the work. You have to sort of balance the two together so you're not abusing the living daylights out of the tire. Um, so it's one of those sort of situations where I don't think the FIA need to step in and do this uh, floor side. I think that lifting the throat, opening the throat up of the of the floor is a little bit of a waste of time. I'll come to that in a second. Um, but, the, you know, the main thing for me is the plank. Police that properly, make sure it's stiff. Make sure it's got good load tests um, and that you can load test it you know, around the skids or anywhere you want to, basically. And I think you'll solve the problem anyway. But, you know, with, with the strakes underneath the front of the floor, you've got three parts to the floor. You've got leading edge, the inlet. You've got the throat then, which is the biggest restriction in that underfloor, which is where you get the downforce out of. And then you get the diffuser, which is expanding the airflow. So you're pulling that airflow through the, the throat as fast as possible. Now, if that airflow in the throat stalls, then obviously the car will start to porpoise, as they call it. It'll, you know, it'll have downforce and it'll have no downforce and it'll, it'll have downforce again. And that that's usually comes from one little area of the throat that just the flow's going too fast. It just can't keep, keep attached to the surfaces. But if we look at the car, current cars that we've got, with the turning range you have from the, the leading edge, turning that airflow out, the sides of the floor, uh, the front corner of the floor, making the front corner of the floor work harder. There's about a third of that inlet area actually used to feed the diffuser. So you're you're not all that inlet flow is not going through to the diffuser. You're you're turning a lot of that flow and bringing it outside of the car to help seal the rest of the floor. Um, and that's the way you get most of the downforce out of the underflow. So there's there's very little of the inlet flow, although it's got a big inlet. There's very little of that inlet flow going through the throat. And um, and down the and down into the diffuser. If you if you really wanted to simplify the the underfloor, you just do away with those turning vanes. You, know? um, you could have a lot more inlet flow going through the throat and into the diffuser. You would lose a massive amount of downforce. So it's all a compromise as to how you go about getting the downforce out of the cars. And say the FIA and the F1 write the regulations, and then it's up to the team to solve those problems. It's been like that since the year dot. So I think the main thing for me, if I was there, would be just making sure that the FIA police the regulations in the correct manner. And if there's a grey area, you've got to close that down. Maybe Red Bull and Ferrari have exploited it, and maybe Mercedes haven't. That's, that's Mercedes' fault at the moment. If it's a grey area that you can't exploit, it's Mercedes' fault because it's not illegal. It's just exploiting it to a maximum. So the FIA just got to close up those grey areas and make sure the cars comply completely with what they intend the regulations to be. Will these changes for next year make much tangible performance difference in terms of lap time? Is it going to be a big drop-off in pace or is it going to be negligible? I think it'll be negligible because, you know, you'll just change your, your development direction that little bit. Uh, you'll change your, the geometry of the floor a little bit. You won't I don't think you'll see it. I mean, even if it's it's coming in, or some of it's um, potentially coming in for Spa, I don't I don't think you'll see it in the, in the competitive world. You know what we're expecting is from Mercedes to keep improving a little bit, and I think this weekend in in, um, 
and Paul Ricard, you know, smoothest track in the world. They can probably run their car a bit stiffer than they they would like to. They can probably run the car a little bit lower than they'd like to. So I think Mercedes are in a good position this weekend. Um, but I think overall, between what we'd say as competitive teams, I don't think it'll be a massive, you know, switch that, that says, okay, you know, um, Haas are going to go and win races in their own right, or McLaren's going to win races. It'll just be a little bit different as to how you set the car up and how you uh, how you design and, and, and uh, optimise the underfloor package. No, no matter what regulation, it's, it's, it's just going to be the same. It's always going to be the same because the best people are, are going to take some two or three people's F- teams, some, some two or three people's FIA uh, regulation, and there's going to be two, three hundred, five hundred thousand people within the teams, you know, exploit that to a different level than the FIA thought was possible. It's also worth just very briefly mentioning the other thing the FIA announced from this technical meeting, which is about strengthening the uh, the roll hoop structure. Obviously, this this refers to what we talked about last week with Joe Guan Yu's crash. I guess that was pretty much necessary, wasn't it? Yes, it was pretty much necessary. I mean, you know, again, and every day in every way we should learn something new and um, with every accident or incident that we have there will be something pop up out of it that's um, that's worth you know adding changing your your um, test regulation or whatever and that was the typical typical one of them I mean that was um, the car at its heaviest going upside down and barrel rolling and wiping the rollover bar off now if you if you look at the cent- central rollover bar that they have on the Alpha, which, you know, passes the test. It, it, that's all you've got to do with these things. It's the same as a floor test or any any load test. It just has to pass that test and it, it's compliant. Um, but it just, all it needs to do is that be 10% higher or, or whatever and suddenly you have a problem. And that could happen to any car. You know, we, we talk about having this sort of, like I call it a double horseshoe, like two horseshoes. And they're, they're welded together at the, at the curved part and they sit on top of the chassis so it's got four legs. Um, that distributes the load into the sort of side walls of the, of the chassis the, where the chassis comes up into the, to the top of the carbon fibre part. That, that, that distributes the load quite well into those, those areas. Um, but you can still punch one of those into the, into, the, into the top of the monocoque if it landed upside down on its roof and the load was higher than the FIA test. So we can't say that all the others are are, are perfect and the the, uh, the, Asm- or the um, Alfa Romeo one was, was wrong. It's just that you learn from these these um, incidents, as I say, and, and you try to react to it. And, and for sure they had to react to that. They had to make it some, some sort of a different test uh, or increase the loads. And I think every team in F1 will be happy enough with it. It's not an easy test to pass by any means. You know, you've got a, most teams would have a a pretty complicated titanium machining as the rollover bar. Um, you're allowed a certain amount of deflection, so you want something that will deflect that little bit, but not break. Um, so it's it's not an easy test, but I think it was necessary to change it for next year. And it's particularly encouraging that this follows an accident where the driver basically wasn't injured. In fact, Joe wasn't even the the most shaken up driver in that incident. Alex Albon actually ended up being knocked about a bit more because he had that big impact with the pit wall then collected Esteban Ocon. So it's always positive when the safety structures have worked, but there has been a failure. So it's protected the driver. 
and hopefully as a result of this next time something like that happens if it's even worse then the driver will have the the same outcome which is exactly what it should be about Well, our main topic on this week's show is the Aramco F1 in Schools competition. The World Finals were held at Silverstone last week. I had the privilege of paying a visit and have to say I was hugely impressed with what I saw. The competition was won by Australian team Hydron, made up of six 17-year-old students, Will Johnston, Benjamin Noonan, Alexander Liu, Andrew Yang, Timothy Crichton and Alistair Murphy. Congratulations to them for coming out on top of the 53 teams from 25 countries competing in the world final. They win scholarships to study at University College London. Now, Gary, you're the chair of judges of F1 in school. So can you explain your involvement in this competition in which teams have to research, design, test and race what is effectively a miniature F1 car works? Um, Yes, um, I got involved 12 years ago. what I do is come in just for the World Championship. I am involved in writing the rules for the World Championship. Um, they're a bit different from the National Championships. Um, and then I sort of try to run the show as a level playing field for everybody. My objective is that the teams are putting a huge amount of effort. They should get priority as far as how they see stuff. You know, we write the rules. But it's again, it's just like the FIA and Formula One some bright spark out there at some university somewhere will find a solution to um, find a grey area. And, you know, it's up to them to convince me that it's correct, exactly as it was in Formula 1. And I have to say, it's been, it's been great to meet some of these kids. I mean, they've, there are some clever people out there, I'm glad to say, that hopefully will solve the problems of the world in the, in the near future. Um, and it's great to see them coming through. It's great to see them coming through and going into Formula 1. There's, there's quite, a few team, uh, quite a few Formula 1 teams that have now picked up some of the, 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 the young engineers. Um, so it's a, it's a really good discipline. It's a bit of everything. You know, you have to be, do verbal presentations. You have to produce portfolios to explain how you designed the car, where, where it, how you come up with the concept for it. You know, all your research and development has to be laid out. Your team identity, how you raise the finances. It's everything that a, that a Formula One team or any motor racing team has to do in a way. But on top of that, with, with this... Uh, Everyone's because you have to also build a car. The car goes down a, a 20 meter track um, and it's, it takes about a second each race. So we have a you know, big build up to the racing and um, a lot of tension, a lot of pressure on teams. But it's not only about the racing, you score points. If you do everything correctly, maximum you can get a thousand points. And the team that won it, I think, this year was uh, got 887 points. So it's, um, you know, they've done a very, very good job. And I have to say, having watched you in action, it's very much your word is law when it comes to overseeing the, the competition. They they do two by two races down a, uh, a straight track, stunningly fast. The, these these cars really uh, uh, remarkable. But yeah, it's very clear that you've attempted to bring these F one standards in, into it, and clearly that's reflected in how seriously it's taken by everyone. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, that, that was my objective. I, I, I didn't want to be a figurehead. I wanted that to, to participate. It was 32 cars, I think it was, racing at Silverstone. Um, 32 teams as such racing at Silverstone. Um, and then the rest were done online as well. So you have to try and find some way that they can both operate and that it's equivalent, you know, because we do reaction racing, for example. So all the teams had to send in their reaction time um, a list of 10 reaction times that they've done on an app that we created for them. And then 
you, you know, we use those reaction times, but you can't just let the people who are at the race meeting that are, that are present uh, actually do on-site reaction time because that's not fair. So it's about the fairdom and all that. And that's where I see my, my job is to try, to try to make sure that it's fair for the teams and that everybody has the same opportunity. Yes, you have to be hard. And we will uh, mark teams down because of um, scrutineering errors. And we have a set of parts of the regulations that we classify as um, a performance regulation, which means that you can't win the fastest car uh, or the best engineered car if you... If you break one of those regulations but still everybody can race there's lots of other awards they can win so you know i've always keen on young people coming in and giving them good opportunity and i'm still very keen on that and that's that's great to see that they want to do it as well well let's hear now from willie McEwen, who it's fair to say is your partner in crime in terms of the technical side i spoke to him at silverstone in one of his few brief moments of respite and started by asking him to explain his role F1 in schools, obviously you're heavily involved on the scrutineering and regulations and team feedback side, so can you just explain a bit about what you do? Well, I'm involved in writing the rules along with Gary and another team of other guys. We put together a document, a technical document, that's 44 pages in length at the moment, so it's quite a hefty document. And from that then, I create scrutineering gauges for the scrutineering teams and involved in, in all of that aspect. So very much <laughs> the way motorsport works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same. You know, we try to replicate as much as we can of the actual pits here and what happens with the teams. And when it comes to the regulations, what are you trying to achieve? Obviously, a good sporting level playing field, but there's a bit more to it than that. There is. Obviously, we we want to have to, we want the kids to think about what they're doing. If we left it open. I don't think that would be the right challenge. You know, it, it's about interpreting technical document and uh, analysing what the wording of it and looking for loopholes. We do leave loopholes just like Formula One has and it's amazing what the kids come up with. I've seen by leave loopholes you mean not deliberate ones, they're just interpretation ones. Well, yes, we, we uh, leave a few options for them. It's not, it's not fully tightened down, you know, otherwise every car would look the same. So we, we put a little bit of tolerance into it and give them scope for design. And obviously it's important to make it so it's affordable and with facilities they've got access to, which I guess is tricky when it's such a global competition. Yes, obviously the competition was developed around Denford machines, so obviously there's a good bit of the element of manufacturing involved CNC routing. So we keep that as core to the, the car the car body but there's scope then for 3d printing laser cutting and things like that uh, and obviously the the standard seems to be very high in terms of looking at some of the times that are being done all very very sort of similar it's not kind of a, a few good teams and everyone else is struggling it's, it's astonishing it's it's incredible and and throughout the years the time just keeps coming down and down and down and then we throw a few spanners in the works to slow them down maybe create a bigger wing something like that because ideally they don't want wings but we force them to have a wing uh, and that we can control it or we add weight to it but generally it's amazing how year on year the design just keeps improving and you just we just keep get blown away by the the ingenuity of, of the kids and obviously the actual live race as it were it's, it's a straight line hence why you say ideally you wouldn't have a wing but what else are you doing to, to evaluate because these are aero cars aren't they but it's a bit more than a straight line machine it is and, and they, they're using the latest CAD they're using you know uh, virtual wind tunnels and things like that to create the, the ultimate shape 
Um, and we have side pods type of thing. We have a virtual cargo, so there's a bulk in the centre. It's not just a pencil on four wheels coming down the track. Um, so there's various parameters that restrict that, but it's just like Formula One. There's exclusion zones, there's things they must have and so on. Is it difficult to interpret what, what's acceptable? Because I imagine some amazing ideas come out. Oh yes, it can get very controversial. We have been caught out a few times uh, with their ingenuity and uh, they come up with something and we have to have a meeting and discuss it and dis- decide whether this is going to be legal or not and uh, rule on it. And we have a good chair of judges, of course. Nobody's wanting to argue with Gary. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's tre- tremendous for the kids. And what's the future of it? Chance to evolve the regulations and keep yeah. the challenge fresh? I, I think we're, we're going to look at them this year um, to try and keep them more relevant to the actual F1 cars in, in terms of shape and wings and so on. And it'll be interesting to see what we come up with that way. Um, maybe... A bit of um, hybrid, we don't know. We had thought about maybe adding electric motors in, we don't know. Everything's in in the air at the moment. We just need time to sit down and and look at the the regs and what we could come up with, you know. You mentioned could add an electric engine. Can you just explain what the propulsion actually is now? Well, it's uh, compressed gas, you know. Canister gets burst and then it's just like letting go of a balloon, you know. It propels the car down the track. But to do 20 metres from a standing start in less than a second, is it, it takes a bit of engineering. Well, Gary, Willie mentioned there that the feedback side, that's important to F1 schools, isn't it? And that's, I presume, something you get involved in as well. So how do you approach that, particularly given there'll be some sensitive times where maybe there's been some kind of scrutineering problem or legality problem that requires some delicate handling? Yes, well, Willie goes through the, um, the scrutineering feedback. Every car is... is um Scrutineered by four, we, we had, this year we had four scrutineers all going through the cars, various areas of them, and Willie oversees that, and I sort of oversee that. In my opinion, the team, until proven guilty, they should be they should be right. So you know, until they they can convince me to think about it, they're on to a bit of a winner, um, because you know obviously I, the regulations are written, they're black and white. Um, they should be they should be adhered to, but if you see it in a different way. And you can convince me, then then I'll let you through with it. So the feedback's very important because everybody learns from that. It doesn't matter so much that you made a mistake. It's understanding why you made that mistake that's the big thing and just not to make it again. Well, the man behind F1 in schools is Andrew Denford, who launched the competition in 1999 and is a familiar face at F1 races as he works tirelessly to get support for this amazing scheme. I caught up with him at Silverstone against the backdrop of the races taking place in the world final. Well, I'm joined by Andrew Denford, the man behind F1 in schools. It's been a phenomenal success, huge amount of growth over the past, what, 22, 23 years. Perhaps you could take me back to the beginning. How did this all start? Where did the idea come from? Yeah, well, it came back in 1999, really, when schools were getting 3D software and they were designing things and, uh, you know, wonderful 3D ob- objects but couldn't manufacture them. And I thought, well, if we could make a, you know, a car perhaps out of a, a 3D design um, using a CNC router, they'll get to understand computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing and CNC technology. And that was really what was needed, massive shortage of engineers in the UK. So we embarked on the project, um, did a launch with eight schools. Everybody was super excited and then we took it to, uh, took it to Jaguar. and. Uh, they just entered F1. Um, their executive director, Mike Beasley, was a great fan of education and got right behind it. And then it just took off from there. 
It's astonishing. Obviously, it's called F1 in schools. You don't get to use the F1 name and logo unless it has F1's blessing and you have involvement. Is it from all the teams have got some involvement now? Or? Yeah, so we were with Jaguar F1 team in schools with the support of F1 from 2000 to 2005. And then, obviously, Je- Jaguar pulled out of uh, F1 and I went to see Mr. Eccleston. And Bernie kind of gave me the logo. Um, and we've had it ever since, and of course, with the new uh, Formula One with you know Liberty Media, uh, the new logo obviously fits in with the, everything that's going on in Formula One. And uh, we've been part of, well, the support we've had from Formula One has been phenomenal, but that's led to obviously working with all the teams. They all support us, they all give us trophies, goodie bags, factory tours, garage tours, come to our awards to, to crown the world champions and present their trophies, which is outstanding really and, and not only that but they give them an opportunity for our students to get into their factories um, and meet people that they could then aspire to and, and potentially get jobs which is what's happening well that's a great thing isn't it it's been going on a long time now so there are people working in formula one who came through f1 in schools and i imagine in many other engineering endeavors outside of f1 as well yeah yeah there's so many i mean i walk down the, the pit lane what we do with the world Champ- world finals and the People will come out of the garage and say, you remember me, Mr. Denford? You know, I did it in 2008 and, you know, they've got beard and ball head. I don't recognise them, but they've got jobs in F1. And, you know, it's apprenticeships. It's working in sponsorship and marketing. It's obviously engineers. We've got people trackside now that did F1 in schools. And we'll have hundreds more that I'm sure I don't even know about. But, you know, we've got BA Systems. We've got, um, you know, Airbus have, have hosted national finals. And it, it's just great to think that these doors are open for these students. And when they see F1 in schools on their CVs, it's a natural. They know they can deliver what they, they, these companies want. They've got the life skills that are needed, really. And we're at the World Final at Silverstone right now. You can hear a little bit in the, in the background. It's a phenomenally big event. There's international teams from all over the place. There's teams who are competing remotely. Obviously, the challenges of, <laughs> of, uh, of the past few years have, I guess, made that more necessary. This just become such a big event. Could you ever envisaged it becoming quite as big as this? No, it, it, they, they get uh, hooked on it now at the age of 11, 12. They start the process. So we've, we've got four different classes. So there's primary school class, paper car, entry development professional class. And it allows so many kids to come in at an easy entry. But obviously, if they get to the world finals, it's professional class, which is just like Formula One. The rules and regulations are, are really quite intense. But... Once they get on the journey, they're hooked. They want to come back year after year. They want to get to the regionals, get to the national. And obviously, the dream for them is to get to the world finals. So it's a journey that they start. And of course, they'll end up maybe going to formal student universities, maybe getting apprenticeships. But the dream is to get, obviously, good jobs on the back of F1 in schools. And how many schools do you get involved in this? Yeah, there's thousands of schools, obviously thousands of primary schools and secondary schools in the UK. We've been in over probably about 1,800 of those over the years. Uh, this year has been a record year because we've had a virtual opportunity to give them a chance to still take part even through COVID. So we've been doing virtual events, we've got virtual regionals and we've got a physical national at Order Sport International in January, which is great because the kids can go along, see a live event again for the first time for, for, for probably two and a half years. Um, so, you know, the numbers are increasing. It's, it's tens of thousands of schools all over the world that have got involved. Um, and it just keeps spreading. You know, the world of Formula One now is growing immensely in interest. And if you look at the audience and the demographic that we're providing, it's fabulous for Formula One. It's fabulous for these kids. And they love the sport. They really do. And obviously, as you talked about earlier, it's all about getting people involved in STEM, which has been a big topic and obviously it's become a, a big topic in a slightly different context recently with push for diversity female involvement so are you seeing a lot more of that as well in terms of being able to get wider diversity of interest in participants 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, EDI is a big F1 in schools. We, we cover all, all forms of you know equality, diversity, inclusivity. We're, we're in all continents of the world. We're working in township schools in Soweto where they can actually make, build a Formula One car and power it through a bicycle pump because there's no power. Favela schools in Brazil. We're working in obviously some high-flying schools internationally, but it's the standard school that you know we're, we're focused on. We're working with disability schools as well. Um, so there's no school can't do this program, and there's almost zero cost for entry because we've got F1 in Schools academies set up around the, the world that will manufacture cars for schools that, that haven't got the equipment. So pretty much, you know, project management now being a big part of F1 in Schools, project management, they can do the business planning, sponsorship marketing, do the analyzing, do the testing, and, and the manufacturing then can be done off-site, and then the racing, they turn up at the event. So, you know, there's no school can't take part in F1 in Schools. And that seems to have been the, the great success of this, in that you're taking something that's fundamentally complicated with barriers to entry in motorsport and taking it to, to people who wouldn't otherwise be involved. How, how difficult was it to hit upon the formula? Because I guess it's easy to come up with the basic idea that you outlined at the start, but to come up with something that works and endures and can develop, that's, that's a tricky formula. It, it is really. I think, I suppose, we started off with design, make, race. Uh, and then when you think about all the other disciplines I've just mentioned, They've evolved over time, you know, CFD, big part of F1 in schools now, they've got to run it through that programme to get the most aerodynamic car. Becomes a norm for the kids, but you know, entry class, you don't need that probably, uh, and development class, but gets a professional, you do. So, because it's different levels, they can come in and go out at any point in time, and I think that's what's given it um, the growth that we've had, because, you know, if, if it gets too difficult, you can jump out and do something else. If you want that complexity and the opportunities that we give you, keep the journey going and, and so I think it's the broadness of what we offer that you know is really what you know gets more and more students involved. And obviously because this is effectively Gary Anderson's podcast I have to ask about Gary's contribution you're not obliged to be nice about him but how important has he been because he's been involved for a long time hasn't he? Yeah I mean we it was getting too serious for F1 in schools and we, we got the technical know-how but not the Formula One now really to uh, maybe look at it from a different angle. So I, I gave Gary a call in uh, 12 years ago, and he I said, "Would you mind coming along to the World Finals and uh, being our chair of judges?" And he jumped in it, uh, and he's come into this, and he's looked at what we did and what we do, uh, and he's re revised the rules on a number of occasions. He's going through a big revision now because we're trying to bring it closer to the 2022 uh, Formula One car, 18 scale. Uh, but Gary's straightforward; it's black and white. So you know, he knows if it's a pass, it's a fail, uh, and he knows if a team is you know, cheating. Not that that goes on very often now, because we, you know, we work it with, with turning. Cheating in motorsport, surely not. <laughs> no, bending the rules, should I say? Innovation, that's the word. Innovation, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, he, he helps the teams. You know, he's had to sit down at some events with some tricky situations to deal with, and he's dealt with them as a professional. You know, and got the kids who potentially at the point of breaking. You know, they're almost in tears that they've failed because they didn't read the regulations, and he's, you know, got them sat down, explained what what it's all about winning and losing competing you've got to lose to, to, to get back and win and I, and I think that Gary's background coming from Formula One has, has just really took, taken this to a level which now people can understand it it is Formula One in the classroom uh, and what's the future for F1 in schools it's now firmly established it's part of Formula One literally as we discussed with the logo but where do you see it over the next 20 years well I don't think I'll be around for 20 years, but uh, well, we just see more well world finals clearly every year. We can now get back to physical events next year. Um, so that's our, our next plan. And, and then to come up with a proper management program for the next 
10 years or certainly five years where we can see where we're going to be each year because it's a bit like Formula One, more countries want to take on the, the world finals. We want to grow it into more countries, so we've got North Macedonia, we've got Macau, uh, Saudi Arabia and Luxembourg as, as new countries at this event. So the, the, the number of countries will continue to, to grow and we're working with the FIA uh, and their ASNs around the world to put it into their, uh, their countries too. So for example in Nepal we've got a centre of excellence there and they're coming to the world finals next year. So there's no limit to the number of countries because they all have to deliver STEM and teach technology at school level, have a project, we've got the project. So that will just continue to grow. But I think if it goes to a point where we've got too many coming to a world finals, we're probably going to have to have you know, a South Asia final, Middle East final, America's final, uh, and then take the top 15 to 20 from each of those. Because if we get too many, you'll dilute the, the quality. As you've probably seen today, the quality is off the scale, really. No, it's been astonishingly high and I guess it's one of those things that the longer it goes on the more people understand how big a challenge it is and then it just it just pushes up standards year after year. Yeah it's pushing up the standards of the outcomes for the students but also for the school and when you consider some of the world champions around the world you know they, they know, the, 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 you know, the, the noise gets out there kids want to go to that school to take part and it's not about the teacher, but it's about the school having a chance to give the, the kids that opportunity to do it as an after-school club to take part in the programme. So you've got to have the head teacher buying into this uh, and getting behind it. That's happening in a lot of countries. We work with ministries of education in different countries around the world, and they push this as well. So the, the benefits are just there. I mean, you can go down and talk to any of those students, and they, they probably don't want to get to 19 when they can't compete anymore because they're on that dream they come back year after year trying to get to become world champion so if there's say a student listening to this now who wants to get involved maybe their school's not so involved what should they do how do they make it happen well get, get in touch with us through the website through f1inschools.com or .co.uk uh, we'll respond as we always do tell them how to do it we'll try and obviously network and introduce the teacher to that but they can they can run it on their own they can pull a, a team together as, as they often do uh, download the rules and regulations, decide what class they want to enter uh, and then just start, start the process. We'll advise when regionals are happening uh, and of course the national uh, and that's it, everything's ready to go. They've just got to decide who's, who's the team principal, <laughs> who's the aerodynamicist, the manufacturing engineer, sponsorship marketing manager, project manager within that team of six and get girls and boys together. That's really good, a, a good mix and, and we've had a lot of successful teams with girls team principal. Well, it's great to see and uh, scale down F1, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. 100%, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. So this is very much echoing F1, isn't it? You've got your big technical regulations, you've got your racing, you've got your regulations against copying. It's it's very much uh, like the world. You're your own little mini FIA. Well, yeah, it is, but it, but it's it's also you know for the teams it's a, it's the first step in life um, from coming out of schools and university. It's the first step into potentially the real world, and unless we sow the seed for that real world as best possible, then it's a bit of a waste of time. So, what we try to do is is make this a real first step so that people can learn whether they 
or the people can take it on whether they want to get involved in the engineering side or the, the team management side or the commercial side. You know, there's a, there's a group of six, six people with each team and they're making decisions on the future of their life. And we have to help them on that way because this is the first step. You know, they're just putting their toe in the water and saying, I want to jump in there. Is it a bit too cold or a bit too hot? So this is put your toe in the water of life with something that's measurable. You know, at the end of the day, it's all a big push. There's like a six, we get the regulations to them six months before the event. So you've got six months to put all this together, design, build your car, whatever, come to a meeting, go through all this pressure of, of showing what you've done, both the performance of the car and all your other disciplines. Um, and the end of the day, you get judged on it. And by the, the final day, there's a, there's a presentation. Now, there's not many things in life that you will see the, the return from so quickly. Formula One is one. You know, it's exactly the same. You start designing your car, you build your car, you go to a race meeting. If you haven't got the budget, you can't get there. If you haven't got the commercial side behind it, you can't get there. If you haven't got the team of mechanics doing the right things, you can't get there. Uh, if the car's not fast, you know, you're not win. So this is, this is about, you know, hitting, you know, a full frontal. You've got the regulations, you've got to achieve it get there and you get the end result you know it's not like put it off to next year or the year after it's not like you know you haven't got five years like building a road car it's it's quick and quick and and uh, the results straight in front of you so i think it's a very good learning curve for for uh, for life well, there's a long list of F1 in schools alumni now working in F1, including George Britton, who's a performance engineer at Williams, Paul Cumber, who's an aerodynamics engineer for Red Bull, Mark Aldersley, who's a transmission and component assembly lifing engineer at McLaren, and Bilal Yildirim, a digital performance engineer at Alfa Romeo. I had a chat to another F1 in schools graduate now working in F1, George Poulter, who's a structural engineer at Williams. I'm joined by George Poulter, who works at Williams as a structural engineer and a former competitor in F1 in schools. So you're ideally placed to explain the pathway from F1 in schools to full-blown F1 career. So, so when did you do F1 in schools? So I did, uh, I think it was around 2012, 2013. I competed in the regional finals. Uh, our, our team uh, won that and then we went to the national finals. Unfortunately, didn't get to the world stage, but um, we managed to get a couple of trophies when we were at the nationals at least. And obviously the aim is to get people engaged in STEM in general, but it's good to have some people progressing into F1. So how did you go from that to being a full-blown Formula One professional? For me, F1 in schools just really opened up my eyes to the whole design and manufacturing process, and that's what clicked with me personally. There's a lot of, you know, they get involved with business and enterprise now, uh, but about 10 years ago yeah, it was mainly more design focused and um, so that sort of got me thinking about going into automotive engineering. From there I went on to sixth form and tried to gain some work experience in, in the automotive industry so I managed to get a week experience with uh, Jaguar Land Rover in their engine build facilities and uh, another week placement at Aston Martin sort of shadowing some of their engineers around. And really, yeah, that just sort of cemented my opinion that I wanted to go into automotive, really. Whilst I was at sixth form, I was, you know, I was uh, studying maths and physics and product design. And I, I was really engaged with my maths and physics. And the, the natural next step was going to engineering, really. So I went on to university, studied mechanical engineering and got heavily involved with former student project there, which is 
the F1 in schools on, on steroids really. Uh, yeah, and then from there, got a year in industry with Williams as a structural engineer. Really clicked on there, got got on well with all my colleagues, and um, and then luckily they managed to, to offer me a job to return after university. But yeah, F1 in schools, I think, is a, a great project for getting kids to really start independently learning, particularly like all those STEM skills, science and, and maths and business as well now, yeah. And obviously we're at Silverstone for F1 in schools, which is why you might be able to hear a few bike engines in the background. And you're up here to speak to the current competitors as you're a kind of shining star, I guess, of uh, what F1 in, in schools can do. So when you're looking at it from this perspective as someone who's working for the organisation uh, here effectively, how does that sort of change your perspective of it? Does it bring waves of nostalgia or does it give you a different perspective on the value? Yeah, I, I, I remember doing the project when I was at school and it felt like you spent a lot of time doing it. At that point, the Formula One, it was sort of like an out of reach thing, really. But I think, you know, getting involved with all these extracurricular activities, it, it really makes you realise that there are achievable goals. And, you know, you've just got to put yourself in these positions to speak to people, uh, you know, like myself, and going around and speaking to kids and getting them to think about what are the next steps. And, you know, it's really important to have mentors around like that and trying to talk about the different routes into industry and trying to get kids to think about you know there's there's not a single route in you know you don't have to go into university you can go to through apprenticeship routes but there are all sorts of things like that and f1 now it's, it's a massive enterprise really you know we've got lawyers we've got uh, accountants engineers obviously mechanics you know all very different skills which this project really is um getting getting kids on on board with and in terms of when you're actually a competitor, I know the competition evolves over the years as motorsport does, but it's still sort of recognisable as a similar sort of thing. You said a lot of effort goes into it. What's it like participating? And, and it's obviously quite a wide-ranging number of, of challenges you have to take on. Yeah, I, I think the, the, so looking around the cars, you know, they've come on a long way since, since I did it. Um, as were you know just the start of 3d printing you know we we had 3d printed wings on which looked very uh, shoddy at the time but so, yes yeah, so some of the effort that goes into the car is unbelievable like formula it's an aero challenge isn't it yeah yeah and i think you know you've got some of these teams have been around for a while now and they're learning every year and passing that knowledge on to on to the next year students there's so many different aspects of the project i think you, it, it, it's very much a, a miniature f1 team really yeah Well, Gary, it must be great to see people like George who did come through F1 in schools and have gone on to, to work in F1 and have successful careers. I guess that reflects how effective F1 in schools is at exposing people to F1 and getting them in that mindset to get on that track towards working in it. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to see people get involved in Formula 1. But you know, the great thing is that all the teams contribute towards F1 in schools. They all, they, they all supply some type of... A, um, a prize for one of the level, one of the competitions. Um, so they're all involved, and they all know that F1 in schools is run to a certain level, and that if somebody writes in for a job in Formula One, they've got uh, on their CV, they've got you know the fact they've competed in F1 in schools, and they, they did this, they finished first, second, third, whatever, won the knockout competition. It shows that they've gone through a cycle of having to do something um, and end up with an end product, and. Uh, I think the F1 teams are realising that now, that if you get to that level, if you've done pretty well in F1 in schools, you actually understand that, that it's not easy and that you know, to get involved in Formula 1, 
with somebody like that or for somebody like that to get involved in Formula 1 with your team is, is a good thing. And I think it's the same in any and in the other industry as well. It's not just F, it's not just F one in schools and then F one. There's many other industries where the same sort of thing happens. It's just got to get recognised by by the industry to accept this as a, a stepping stone in the curve of life, and uh, that you know if you've done it and done it well, you've actually got the first step in the right direction of understanding what achieving a goal is all about. And of course, it's it's hugely important for F one as well because there's a lot of there's a lot of competition for getting high quality graduates in, into teams, isn't there? And, and in fact, it's a little bit harder these days because although working in F one is still very popular, it's not necessarily always at the top of the list. And there's a lot of other challenges in the world, particularly in the world of green tech and that kind of thing, technology to uh, to, to fight climate change is hugely appealing. So it also works well in terms of making sure F one does continue to get the best people by exposing them to it. Yes, it is. I mean, as I say, that's that's the thing you learn from, you know. Yes, people make mistakes, but you learn by mistakes. And the most important thing is to get 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 involved in it, get exposed to, to a system where it teaches you about doing something and, it, you know, it's written. There's always regulations to life for everything, and you have to comply with them. And this is an example of that. You know, you just have to comply with the regulations to get there. All the disciplines require some type of a, commitment to achieving it and that is true of industry you know we, we just we just have to accept the fact that uh, the world is a changing place and the more experience you can get before you have to take on your challenge of life um, the more important it is because not everybody knows what they want to do in life immediately and F1 in schools gives you a, a little bit of a, a bit of a glance at what different disciplines will, you need, how you need to attack different disciplines. So that's that's a very important thing. So I, I think, yeah, I think genuinely it's a good stepping stone from your school university days to actually moving into the the big world of of industry. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. If you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can just record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen in the race. And also remember to tell us who you Ah, our question this week comes from Ollie Fitton, who says, thanks for creating a dedicated space to geek out about the intricacies of F1 technology. The latest episode on development and use of carbon fibre in F1 was fantastic. You've gone in-depth on the mechanical and aerodynamic elements of car design, the hardware. There don't seem to be many sources of similar quality information on software, though. Bring Back V10s occasionally touches on the traction control controversy from the era, and we've heard bits about the dark magic involved in the development of the FW14's active suspension. I'd love to hear an episode about the development and use of innovative software on board the cars over the years. We know that tools like CFD are used at the factory to design the cars, but I'd love to hear about the battles to gain advantage from computing in the race through fly-by-wire, information presented on the dash, sensors at centre telemetry, etc. I know the FIA rules dictate the use of software on board. Lots of FIA regs are in reaction to someone gaining a competitive edge through innovation. Is it a similar story with the FIA regs on software and ECUs? 
give some love to the electronics guys and gals. So I guess my questions are, what role does computing play onboard F1 cars today? What innovation by F1 teams led to the current regulations regarding onboard computing? And who are the driving forces behind computing on F1 cars? By this I mean teams, but also partner companies like Intel, IBM, etc. Well, Gary, there's a lot there. Obviously, software is difficult because it's uh, it's invisible, effectively, isn't it? You can see some of the effects, but it, unlike a, uh, a hardware, you can't sort of look at it and, and understand it. So, yeah, the, the role of computing in F1 today. The role of computing. Well, I mean, basically, I suppose you could say that you know the the electronics in an F1 car is a massively high speed computer. Um, it's what you can do with it. What you're allowed to do with it is the main thing. And you touched there on, on the active suspension and traction control in the lead up to your question. You know, if you had active, active suspension now or traction control, it would be so much more sophisticated, or it could be so much more sophisticated to what the FW14 had. Um, we spec'd the car out, and I think it was 1994, we were working with Lucas, and we spec'd the car out, which basically the driver was just an input machine. Everything would happen. Um, everything would happen from what he did. When he pressed the throttle pedal, for example, you know, he would just go flat on the throttle pedal and then the engine would apply the, the, the power at the maximum level, you know, with the, with the correct amount of wheel slip to get the, the best grip out of the tyre. Every, every wheel was camber adjusted. Uh, the steerings were all independent. You know, it was already high-end um, high-end car and it's, you know everything from the the right heights of the car for drag for maximum downforce the whole thing was was all there and you know there, there's road cars out there like that now so i feel quite proud that back in 1994 we were sort of specifying a form of one car to achieve the same thing but it's about opportunity all is controllable through the software but you need the opportunity for the the hardware or the application to be applied to the car currently we have got things, let's say, fly-by-wire throttle, which is a great uh, addition. Um, it's not now called a throttle pedal, it's called a torque pedal, because you've obviously got the IC, uh, the um, internal combustion engine, ICE, um, supplying torque. Um, you've got the electrical side supplying torque. Um, you've got how you, how you um, uh, use that electrical torque, where you use it on the circuit, and then it all, all mounts up in the computer and the driver just says what he wants he wants something from the throttle pedal and he gets what he, he needs from the throttle pedal um, so it doesn't matter to him whether it's um, ICE power or, or battery power you know he'll get the best torque he can um, and then it's where you use it how you deploy that as I say coming off the corner at the end of the straight that's up to the team to work that out but that's all done in the computer so it's massive amount of stuff still goes on in there um, you see them change the brake balance and the number comes up on the steering wheel. You know, that's all again done by button pressing, changing the brake balance because half the braking is done electronically for the rear axle through the, the, uh, the uh, ERS and the other half's done hydraulically. So, you know, you balance those two together a bit like the ICE and the, and the electrical torque. Slowing the car down is done with electrical torque and hydraulic torque. So, the driver couldn't cope with that. You know, it really would be very, very difficult for him to cope with that. So it's all done by the computer. So there's, there's still a huge amount of stuff goes on. Um, tire temperatures, tire pressures, all that's monitored. The driver knows about it. The team knows about it back in the garage. 
And that's, if you take all the, the parameters of the engine, all the sensors, again, they're all monitored, they're all sent back to, to the garage so the engineers can look at it in the garage. So a massive amount is, is still computer controlled, but we don't have, again, going back to what you said there, the, the actual out-and-out traction control and the uh, active suspension. And you know, a lot of people have been talking about having active suspension to, to overcome this aerodynamic porpoising problem. I think that's wrong. I think having active suspension is a different level, a different, a different thing completely. You shouldn't introduce something to, to counteract the problems of something else. You should introduce something because it is the correct way to go for that application. And I'll, t I'll take an example of that. You know, when we had traction control back in the old days, you could, you could do it you know, really, really well um, electronically. But we had two drivers at that time with uh, Giancarlo Fisichella and Takuma Sata. And Takuma was just sort of new in Formula One. He would just come out of the corner and nail the throttle flat out and allow the traction control to, to work itself out. Um, Giancarlo was different. He was from the old school. So he would still try to control the traction through the throttle pedal. Um, which in turn would confuse the traction control because, you know, it, it was trying to cope with any wheel spin and he was trying to cope with any wheel spin. So Takuma was much, much better for developing the traction control than, than Giancarlo because Giancarlo wanted to drive old school. But it still didn't matter because at the end of the day, if you had a car with bad traction and the best traction control in the world, you still had a car with bad traction. You still couldn't apply as much torque to the rear wheels. So the car wouldn't accelerate in the same way. So traction control stops the car having a bit of wheel spin, but the car doesn't accelerate as fast. So, uh, whereas if you've got a driver, um, and that time I used to pay a lot of attention to Michael Schumacher, and I remember him in, in Barcelona through turn three, and you could hear the Ferrari. Half the time he would be using a traction control, and the other half the time he'd be using his right foot. And you know, on my little section times, he was always quicker with his right foot. Than, than the traction control. So you've got to make sure you've got the car with the best traction, which was what Michael was trying to do. He was trying to get the traction better on his car. And then when it comes to a race weekend, he could use traction control because he knew he had the best traction possible. And he knew how to achieve that with his right foot and getting the engineers to change the setup of the car. And again, it's a bit like, you know, in MotoGP or, or bikes where they have traction control. Um, a lot of riders don't like it because it doesn't allow them to, to, to get the bike to turn using traction control. So what I'm saying is it's, it's, a, it's a bandage on top of something a lot of the time. Very, very powerful, very, very good at achieving that, but it shouldn't be used for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and obviously you can see how vital this is with teams because most teams have got IT partners. They've got companies like cognizant oracle for its cloud power for simulations at red bull so it's grown massively obviously you're spanning f1 i guess you started when it was a a fully mechanical world but electronics started to come in in earnest really it started to come in, in the 70s really didn't it and it's it's just ramped up ever since yeah i think when you talk about partnerships with uh, with computer companies i think um one of my first jobs was to convince um I think it was a Dell in uh, in Dublin to supply us with two free laptops. That was the first challenge I had because we didn't have anything. So um, we got two free laptops, laptops out and we used them for a couple of years with our data logging system. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it is a driving force behind it. You know, the more powerful you can make your computing system, the, the better. But 
in, in the car itself, there is a standard um, data logger um, which is used by all the teams to standardize it a little bit. And that's really to stop, stop it getting to a level where there was things inside that, that uh, ECU as such that um, might be questionable, as we've had in the past. Uh, we've had teams that were thought to have traction control. Be, but, you know, that was because they had their own um, black boxes, I suppose, controlling the car. Now it's one black, black box that controls the car. So there's only certain parameters within that that you can you can play with. So it has standardized that a little bit. It's taken away a lot of the question marks as to, to what what you can do within it. But it, it hasn't taken away the question mark as, as to how good you are at doing something. You will still, like any team, you know, you'll have very good compass engineers, very good aerodynamic engineers, very good hydraulics engineers, and you have to have very good electronics engineers to to optimize what you get out of the car. And that's the important thing, getting the good people and then trying to work out what you do with it. You know, we've, we've had many, many occasions where people were using um, pit limit strategy on the track, traction control. You know, things will always happen. If there's an opening there to to bend the rules that little bit, you know, some teams will jump in and try and do it. But it's, you know, controlling it is very, very difficult. I think we're at a good point now in F1 where there is very little controversy as far as electronically what you can achieve. Um, the more sophisticated we get with it with fuel flow meters and, you know, just the simple, the, the, the things that are necessary now um, to monitor and make sure that you're not contravening the regulations gives you an opportunity to, to maybe, maybe get into a grey area. And we saw that with Ferrari, I think, in 2019. You know, they, they had a they had a bit of a problem somewhere along the line with the fuel flow meter. Nobody knows what it was, but they definitely got penalised by the FIA for it. But I don't think they were legal. I think they just found a loophole. And um, you know, if you can find that loophole, well, you'll find it. But that's about policing the, the uh, policing the formula rather than elim- eliminating the potential of it. So electronics will always play one of the most major parts because without the control we have at the moment, the car would never leave the garage. Well, a great question there from Ollie Fitton. Lots of uh, aspects to, to the question he asked. So perhaps we should get an electronic specialist on on a future episode to delve into that in even more depth. Thanks very much, Gary, for your insights. If anyone wants to find out a little bit more about F1 in Schools, check out f1inschools.com. And we'll be back next week to discuss aerodynamic testing on four and two wheels, joined by special guest. So join us for so join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.